0: You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerLondon.org. Great, we are looking at the Nicene Creed. This is week two of a five-week series. Now suddenly, if you've got your Bibles at the ready, you think, uh, Pete, where's that? (laughs) The reality is the Nicene Creed is not in the Bible. Just as the moon has no light of its own, but only reflects the sun. The creed is not actually revelation from God, but reflects Scripture to us. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the story. I mentioned something last week about the Nicene Creed. I'm going to tell you a little bit more of the story today, and then I'm going to take us into the Bible, and we can discover the truths that are there. But what we're going to do for these five weeks is we're going to say the creed together. And so it's going to come up here, This has been said for 1,700 years. We believe it's the foundations of the Christian faith. So let's all say together, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God. Light from light. Fantastic. I love this. The, the, the reality is, and I'm just going to quickly tell the story about why this happened. There was a guy, and I've got his picture up. This is, they believe, Constantine. Constantine was a Christian, and he was also the emperor of the Roman world. I explained last week, he joined the East and Western empires together. And, and what he wanted in AD 325 is he, he wanted to try and establish one sort of foundation to faith. So he called together this council, and it was in Turkey, and you can see, and this was a picture of where they'd gathered all these people together. They actually think there was 318 bishops there. Now, the reality was that there was one guy who proposed something, and his name was Bishop Arius. He'd written a book called Banquet, and this is a picture of him. And he basically proposed that although Jesus was divine, he hadn't existed through all eternity. He came from Africa, from Egypt, and we've got a picture of the next one there. So this was this guy, he turned up and he was saying, holding this book, and he was saying, actually, Jesus was really important, but he wasn't God. And somebody else said it was a deacon from the same area, it was Alexander, and he said, no, 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 I've got a picture of him as well. He said, what you're teaching is false. And so they ended up having this big debate about it. And there was, I think it was 312 out of the 318 that were there and able to vote agreed with this guy. And in the midst of this debate, because he was so upset, this man gets up with a halo around him. And he walks across and slaps the guy around the face. Now, some of you will know who this guy is. Because this guy was called St. Nicholas. And he is the founder of Father Christmas. And it all started with the Nicene Creed. Some of you think, are you being serious, Pete? Absolutely. That is where they reckon the whole thing will come. You see, false doctrines can make even Father Christmas go red in the face. Ah. <laughs> Took me a lot of time to work on that one. (laughs) That is a totally true story. They honestly think it happened in the Nicene Creed. They honestly think they fell out. And the reason they fell out is what we're going to look at today. So last week, I looked at Almighty Father. They hadn't fallen out of that. But what we're going to look at today is Jesus Christ. This is what literally caused Father Christmas to get up and punch someone in the face. There's three things that we're going to look at. I'm going to say this, Jesus Christ is eternal, I believe that, Jesus Christ died, I believe that, and Jesus Christ rose. Jesus Christ is eternal, it says in the creed, we believe in in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Now, in some respect, that's not the kind of language that we would necessarily use today. And so I just think, how do we understand this? Well, if you have your Bibles, you can open it up at the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is a book in the New Testament. And uh, chapter 1 gives us this amazing picture of who is this Jesus Christ. It says in Hebrews 1, verse 1: In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now we could go on and on in that passage because suddenly you think, oh, this is obviously where this... Creed had come from. They'd looked at scripture and there was a very clear revelation of who is the Son of God. He is the Son, He's God's definitive revelation. If you want to know what God is like, look at the Son. It says here He's the Heir of all things. I mean, I cannot begin to comprehend the truth that is packed into this small passage of how great is God. I'll be really honest, I've always understood, grew up going to church, you've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And I guess if I was really honest, I could end up thinking of God the Father like that, and God the Son like that, and God the Holy Spirit almost like this, maybe smaller Whereas actually, when you start reading a passage like this, well, if God the Father is like that, then God the Son is like that. If someone asked me to describe myself, I might say something like, oh, Pete, I, I love God, I'm married to Nikki. I'm three kids, and I'm also an Arsenal fan. That word also, you just throw in a few trivial facts, don't you? When the writer to the Hebrews throws in a trivial fact about Jesus Christ, what does he say? And and through whom, also, he made the universe. (laughs) I mean, you cannot grasp how great this Jesus is. Also, yeah, he was the one that created the whole universe. Wow! How do we stand back and look at him? He is the radiance of the glory of God. It's almost like, and and it's only a picture, but you've got this, I mean, even the sun, even with your Ray-Bans on, you're not supposed to look at the sun, are you? But you sort of discover something of its, its brilliance around and where it reflects. He is the exact representation of God. In those days, they would have had like, you know, wax and they'd put a stamp on it and you'd have said, that's an exact image Oh, that's what Jesus Christ is like. He's an exact image of God. He sustains the world. I mean, it's a bit like, you know, if I've got this book like this, what keeps the book in the air? It's me. And what happens if I move me? The book falls. That's the the way he's describing this entire planet. Is sustained by Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, I could start singing, but that won't be a pleasant thing. Oh! As soon as I stop, the note stops. As soon as I stop sustaining that breath, the note is gone. That's the way the Bible describes Jesus as sustaining this earth. Whoa. He is the one who sustains everything. And this is just one passage. And so when they were trying to get together, they were saying, God, who is this Jesus? And the danger is one man had said, oh, no, actually, Jesus was only this big. And I think they were coming back and saying, no, 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 no. no. Jesus is much, much bigger than we can grasp or comprehend. We have the Bible. As I've said, I'm not just trying to preach a creed. I want us to understand something of the truth of the Bible. You could flick through if you've got pages. It's easy, I guess. You just scroll down on your phone. You go back to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John. There we discover about Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Jesus didn't just turn up at Christmas. You know, it's almost like they say, oh, well, God the Father, and then, oh, you got the New Testament, Jesus appears. No, no, in the beginning, he always was. Jesus himself uses a phrase in John 8, verse 58, before Abraham. Abraham was one of the earliest fathers in the Jewish faith. Before Abraham was even born, I am. Now, if you knew anything about the Jewish faith, I am was the name for God. And so when these people were coming and they were talking to him, he was saying, actually, you know, even before Abraham, right at the start, I was. I am God. Whoa. Have we missed that? Paul, when he writes to the church in Colossians, Colossians 1 verse 15 says this, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, Can you grasp how great Jesus is? goes on in Colossians. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. I can't get my head around this. As I said last week, and and partly we're looking at this creed, and we're just trying to stand back in this series and say, what do we believe? The Bible teaches that God is three persons. Each person is fully God, and there is only one God. (laughs) You might say, how does that work? I don't don't totally know. But what I'm not going to do is dilute down the Bible to my understanding. You see, if we are followers of Christ, we kneel before the Bible, and I think, hmm, I'm not quite sure how those things go together. But you are right, and I want to learn from you. Some would deny that there is one God. I guess that would be the Mormons. Oh, and actually there's not one God, there's three gods. But that is not what the Bible says. The Bible says there is one God. Some would deny that God exists as three persons, and instead would say it's one God who's manifest in three different ways. That is really difficult when it comes to the baptism of Jesus, because the voice of God and the Spirit descend on the man Jesus in one place. Some then deny that Jesus is fully God. That would be Jehovah's Witnesses. Actually, maybe we could accept the Father Jehovah, but then there's this sort of limited one, and I guess if you go on that logic, you do have the other limited one of the Spirit. The Bible clearly says God is three. Each is fully God. There is one God. Wade and Kamika, if you could just come here for one moment, that would be wonderful. I don't want to cause disharmony within a marriage, but I would like to just see how these two get on. (laughs) You can stand to the side and you can just stand in front of me. Now, you just stand... If I've got a tube like this, and you say you can only see in 2D. Now, if I asked you to describe the shape of this, what would you say it is? A circle. And if I asked you to describe the shape of the object in front of you, 2D shape, what would you say it is? Tube is 3D. Rectangle, 2D. Is it a circle? No. So are you right or is your wife right?
1: Don't answer it.
0: (laughs) Not on this occasion. You very diplomatically said, because obviously these guys have been together for some time, not from where I'm looking at it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. He picked it up when I said straight away, how's your marriage going? I've got to be careful here, I'm on thin ice. The honest truth is, if you look at that 2D, you're going to say, look, Pete, you're holding a rectangle. And you look at that 2D, you're going to say you're holding this. But the honest truth is that when we get to understand the wisdom, you think, oh, it's more than that. Thank you very much. You guys have passed. (laughs) What about when we come to God? I think our challenge is, if we're really honest, that we are limited and we try and approach an infinite God with our finite minds. And maybe we're just looking in 2D and we say, well, actually, there's... Three gods. Oh no, there's one. How do we grasp who God is? And sometimes we just got to try and say, from where I'm standing, this is what it looks like. But I don't necessarily understand. The Bible declares that the Son of God became the Son of Man that the sons of men might become sons of God. Now that just blows my mind. But that is a truth. That is in this creed that is in the word. What's the second truth? For us and our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. If you've never done Alpha, I encourage you. Come along to the Alta End Live, bring a friend, sign up for the Alpha. There's a whole evening there on why the cross is central to the Christian faith. Obviously, we meet in the town hall, which is a, a nice, beautiful rectangle. Most church buildings are built in the shape of a cross. You'll go there, you'd have the altar there, and you've got these sort of side chapels there because it's been so central to the faith. Many Christians wear a cross maybe get tattooed across nowadays. There's that whole commitment. Oh, the cross is central to what we stand for. Paul, again, writes about this in Colossians. Colossians 2, he says to the church, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And so we understand that Jesus is eternal, but we also believe this truth. Jesus died on a cross, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who who was a London preacher a couple of hundred years ago, he was nicknamed the Prince of Preachers because he had such a big crowd and so many people listened to him, said this, my entire theology can be condensed into four words. Jesus died for me. Jesus died. Many of the New Testament letters that were written were done within 25, 30 years of the death of Jesus Christ. Often there were eyewitnesses still alive. They they unashamedly declare Jesus Christ died. Now, if the Romans or the Jews didn't want this thing to start infiltrating, this sort of lunatic bunch, they would have just brought out the body. But they had no body to bring out. The tomb was empty. Many would say strongest historical evidence for the resurrection that can be found. There was an empty tomb. Jesus Christ died on a cross and was placed in a tomb. The penalty for sin was paid. The shame of sin was removed. The fear that results from sin, was replaced by peace. On the cross, Jesus suffered. He took our punishment. He was the sacrifice in our place. Josh McDowell, he's an apologist. He's written 150 books. And if you start thinking, God, I'd like to read more into this, get hold of some of his material. He says this, the disciples proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus Christ because they said he'd been raised from the dead. He died. The Old Testament had declared this all along. He will die. Isaiah had said, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. This is talking about Jesus. It's a prophetic word hundreds of years earlier. He said he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Look, there was no sort of, oh, suddenly we found somebody that looks like Jesus Christ and they can die in the place. The Bible clearly describes the fact that Jesus died on your behalf. Jesus physically went to that cross. There was no replacement. Everybody was arguing it. The disciples were all saying it. Ten out of the eleven disciples that remained faithful, obviously Judas hung himself, were killed for this very fact. I believe that Jesus Christ died for me. The creed has declared it. Jesus Christ died. Ravi Zacharias, he's an Indian born American apologist. Another guy, if you think, oh, I'd like to read more into this, look up some of his stuff. Outside of the cross of Jesus Christ, there is no hope in this world. The cross and the resurrection at the core of the gospel is the only hope. He's saying that we 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 come and we focus upon the cross. Jesus was eternal. Jesus died. And the third thing that I would say the creed and scripture teaches us is this. Jesus rose. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Many would say the world is divided into two types of people. I wonder which type you are. I know that I've got here uh, a picture, and one of you might say, oh, yeah, if I'm honest, my phone is more like the left or is more like the right? Have you got loads of things that you've never quite got to, or are you just always neat and tidy? Maybe it's nothing to do with mobile phones. Maybe it's a bit like your car. Are are you like this? Oh, golly, I'm almost touching half. I need to fill up. Oh, well, I'll just see how far I can go on empty. I reckon there's another 30 miles in a tank. Many marriages could start looking at this and think, oh yeah, you're like that and I'm like that. (laughs) The reality, I would say, the world is divided into two types of people by this one thing. Do you believe Jesus Christ rose from the dead? I would say, some say yes and some say no. What about you? Do you believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead? Tim Keller, he's another apologist, theologian and pastor. Again, if you think, I'd like to read more into this, get hold of any of his material. He says this, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, why worry about it? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Sometimes we think, oh, I don't think I like that bit of Jesus, but I like that bit. Oh, I'll take that bit, but I'll forget that. He says, no, no, you can't cherry pick what he says. You've got to decide on the one thing. Did Jesus rise from the dead? And if he rose from the dead, everything should change. I would say that this is the thing that should be central to us as a church. I think there's two things. um, Some in church history would have called them sacraments that we're asked to do. Jesus himself asked us to do it. One is to get baptized. Jesus modeled it. I was chatting to someone just about this yesterday, looking to get baptized. Jesus modeled it. Jesus commanded it. Jesus commissioned it. Why is that? Because it identifies you with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died, and you go down into the pool. It's meant to be a grave. You're dying to yourself. You come back up because you're saying, I now live for him. If you've never been baptized as a believer, why not? I honestly think. I grew up in a church, some of you might have done, and my youth leader said to me, he said, Pete, when are you going to get baptized? And, you know, if you're in a church, you know the answer was, oh, whenever God tells me. (laughs) I said, oh, whenever God tells me. (laughs) And he said, oh, but he already has. It's written in the book. Why don't you read it? Some of us, I think we can put things off. Oh, I don't know if I feel like it. Now, actually, if Jesus Christ rose... That changes everything. And if we've not got baptized, why not? This is our privilege. The other thing that I believe he asks us to do, baptism is a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. If you've not got baptized, it's going to be great and special on the 23rd. That's it. The other thing is you come every week, and we break bread. Because this reminds us again, doesn't it, that actually the eternal Son of God Died for me. His body was broken that I might know peace. His blood was shed that I might know forgiveness. And I, I challenge us not to become religious about this, but to every week think, oh God, how do I come and think, poor, whatever my week's been like, whatever my family's like, whatever work's been like, Jesus, this surely is where I want to center point in my life. I don't just want to sort of shuffle up and and grab my things. I I want to come and say, Jesus, how do I? He said, do this as often as you can. And you know what? When I come back and I grab you all and I take you home, we're going to do it together. Because there's something about us celebrating the death and resurrection of Jesus. This changes everything. I'm running right out of time. I'm going to land very quickly. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and then he appears to all these guys. He goes on in verse 13, if there's no resurrection of the dead, if Christ has not been raised, man, my preaching is useless, and so is your faith. He carries on in verse 21. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. For in Adam we will die, in Christ we're all made alive. He describes the resurrection as first fruits. The rest of the crop is coming. Jesus rose, we will rise in him. Many of us will know, won't you, that if there's lightning, thunder's coming. If Jesus rose, we will rise with him. He says, look, you were in Adam. There was nothing you could do about it. Let's be honest. If you're a parent here, you don't teach your kids to lie, do you? You don't teach your kids, you know, oh, you know, be rude, swear, and do all this kind of stuff. It almost just bubbles up inside. them. They seem to naturally learn these things. We're in Adam. We cannot help but do wrong. But he says, because of Christ and the resurrection, you can be in Christ. For I don't deserve this life. I don't deserve to be loved by God. You're singing about, oh, the unending, the pursuit of God. He pursues you. But but if you knew my weak Pete, you wouldn't want to pursue me. It's nothing to do with you. Because you were in Adam, you can be in Christ. Jesus now rules and reigns over this earth. He's not not abandoned us. I wish I could have longer to look at that. He's not left the world to tick along. He's at the right hand of the Father. This truth, this creed, it reflects scripture. Isn't Jesus wonderful? The eternal God who died for me rose again. I've got guaranteed life, not because of me, but because of him. I mean, that changes everything, doesn't it? I I must stop. We don't live our Christian life, therefore, out of duty, but out of delight. You know what I'm saying? You don't sign up for a meetup because you think, oh, come on, Rich, that's it. No more stickers and T-shirts, I'm in. You do it because actually, Jesus, you are worth everything. And you mean I get the privilege of being part of a group where I get challenged and I could grow and I could learn and I could be a part of an authentic community. And You mean I got that opportunity? Let me sign up now! That's what you would do, isn't it? Because Jesus Christ changes everything. You mean this news is so good, you're going to give me free coffee and jazz next door? Book me 20 spaces. It's like, oh, golly, what what, what am I doing that Thursday night? I think I'm having a hair wash. No, you see, Jesus Christ changes everything. Otherwise, it's duty. But if we really dwell upon Him, it becomes delight.